The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning, good morning. It's the second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9, 99.9, Bangor, and on the internet at WERU.org. I'm Alan Sprague, along here with Mike Joyce, your uh, unshackled anchors of uh, Boat Talk. Unshackled anchors is uh, pretty close to loose cannons as far as we're concerned. And we're joined w- with uh, two guests today, uh, Nicole Grahoski and Caitlin Mullen, here to uh, talk about uh, various boating things. But first, we'll uh, talk about a little bit of the current events. Mike, what do you have? Classic to uh, tie the anchor to something before you toss it overboard. The mistake has been made a couple uh, of times, as you said, the loose cannons. Uh, yeah. Um, oh, a couple things. Uh, let's clean up from uh, last boat talk. We talked to Steve Callahan uh, last time. Steve, of course, uh, survived 76 days on a life raft, wrote a New York Times bestseller called The Drift, and then got some nice work in Hollywood. Talked about him on uh, Ang Lee's uh, Life of Pi and Ronnie Howard's uh, In the Heart of the Sea movies. Thought it was a pretty good discussion. Also, uh, talked about, uh, was reading a book called Grunt. It's a... Um, uh, it's about military science, uh, how the military researches uh, everything from um, the best clothes to dress you in, um, the effects of loud noises on behavior. Uh, Hair length. Yeah, yeah uh, how to get out of uh, sinking submarines and, and, in this case, shark repellents. And uh, so we talked about that a little bit and got a, didn't have the uh, uh, actual material on hand. It was just something I'd read. Went back, looked it up again. Um, Shark repellent comes down to the equation is the speed of the shark coming at you compared to how fast you can release and and a and a mixture will dissolve and what kind of concentration that might make to repel a shark and they found out that even with stuff that will kill a shark sharks will eat right up until they die pretty much <laughs> if they're hungry and going for it and you're going to lose that that you're going to lose that equation anywhere about the speed of the shark and dilution and concentration. But up until uh, Gemini space capsules, the American military put something called shark chaser in planes and space capsules. And it was an 80% black dye, huh. 20% so-called pink pill because it's nice to have something whether it works or not. Yeah. Yeah. So Easy. they tested a lot of stuff. They couldn't find anything that worked. And it come down to, then they started testing uh, blood and fish blood. Fish blood always makes sharks crazy. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. They found that um, shark attacks were overrated. And that in World War II, for instance, out of uh, 2,500 accounts of uh, downed uh, people in the water, there were only 38 shark sightings and 12 injuries. You know, it's a little uh, overrated. Um, sharks are animals of prey. They want something that's wounded or dead. 
and you're not their preferred prey to start with. It's not to say that it doesn't happen. You won't get bit on your on your People uh, surfboard. Been. Yeah, it does happen. But the uh, point being that it's not your biggest problem. Uh, for instance, there's a manual of um, essential sea survival, Golden's uh, Essential Sea Survival, and they they look at every problem. You can come in there, uh, cold water immersion, uh, running out of breath, uh, getting covered with oil, uh, you know, anything could happen to you. Sharks don't I can't eat. imagine bringing that book with me when I fall overboard. And again, <laughs> here's the problem of... Um, uh, Practicing and memorizing stuff and then being on the spot, you can't always bring it back. Uh, you can shoot 100% on the range but not hit anything uh, when you're in, in a uh, dire situation. Um, but, again, this uh, book that, that uh, goes on and on, it's the classic of uh, sea survival. It doesn't have a chapter on sharks. They just didn't make the uh, – not, not one of your biggest problems. Yeah. Yeah. Or either that or it was bit off. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I wanted to clear that up. And I want to mention, too, I uh, got some criticism from um, – we talked about the uh, – uh, last month was the uh, day the El Faro transcripts came out, the uh, boat that sank. Yeah. Um, uh, cargo ship that sank on its way to Puerto Rico last year in the hurricane and uh, was uh, uh, pointed out that I was uh, very cavalier and uh, uh, very capricious and went on happily to the next subject when I discussed that. And uh, I'm sorry that it came off that way. Yeah. Yeah. It, we both feel, especially with half a dozen Mainers on the boat and loss of everybody, it's, uh, yeah. it's always and a I, tragedy. I would, I would like to say that um, I've been two nights at sea where he looked around and said, are we going to die tonight? You know, and both nights you look around and say, maybe not. And we didn't. And uh, but I got the idea. I, I can visualize that all too well. And, and in some ways, it's a defense to you mean, um, the experience of being in some rough seas where yeah. Yeah, you're pushing the limits. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pushing the limits. You're where you shouldn't be. And um, it's not all up to you what happens when several tons of water falls on you, um, which is what happened to them, too. So, yeah. So anyway, I apologize for that if it came off wrong. But, again, I, I can visualize it all too well. So perhaps I did speak a little too cavalierly about that. And I was paraphrasing a merchant captain friend of mine who, again, put it more bald than that. So, <laughs> yeah. But he's been, in, he's been in a couple life rafts. I never have. So, yeah. so um, while we're on the subject of ship, shipwrecks, have you heard about the latest news of the uh, Titanic? Yeah, there's a new theory on why it might have sunk. Well, yeah, yeah. It's actually sort of a, yeah. There's a, a documentary coming out uh, talking about a fire and a massive cover-up to blame the severity of the disaster. The documentary says that a uh, coal fire that started in the Titanic's boiler rooms actually weakened the integrity of the ship's hull at the location. This is good, good old Mother Nature. At the location of the impact of the iceberg, same place, that exasperated the uh, damage to the ship and caused it to sink faster. The documentary says that uh, the fire started in one of the Titanic's coal storage bunkers during sea trials approximately 10 days before the boat left uh, Southampton, mm. and the evidence suggests that the fire continued to burn even after the Titanic 
departed on his maiden voyage. Yeah, and it weakened the iron that the ship was made out of. New photograph or old photographs that were newly discovered of the Titanic. One of them shows that that's that area, and there's a big, long sort of uh, dent, depression in the hull right in that area, and there's some change of the paint to like the, there's some been heat, heat going on there and this fellow has been researching this for years probably he's again uh, it's not a not a cavalier new theory yeah yeah very interesting metal boats uh kind of a counterintuitive idea that iron would float like that but um they're not uh, the problem with metal boats is that they're not long lived to start with because they rot mm-hmm. literally rot yeah water and by and adding great heat to that you've basically accelerated the process of damaging the metal on that brand new boat. Hmm. I could see that happening. Okay. Um, One other quick one is uh, we'll probably be following this in the future. There is an iceberg iceberg about to happen in Antarctica, an iceberg the size of Delaware. It's just about to break off from the Larsen's ice shelf, and it's – Expected to be one of the biggest iceberg calving events ever recorded. Size of Delaware floating around down there. We expect to get splashed. What will uh, be the What will be the ramifications? They say not too much. They said it doesn't doesn't look like it's going to change the sea level area, and that giant icebergs such as this one usually present little threat to shipping since they break up and melt, or before floating into busy shipping lanes or sometimes simply just float around Antarctica. The uh, mass of of, uh, miscommunication and misinformation on on, uh, the global atmosphere that seems to be changing just absolutely stuns me, let alone that the uh, people now in charge of the United States government seem to uh, not believe in the theory. And uh, I just wonder how that will age with time. <laughs> yeah. Alan made a bumper sticker uh, just recently. He gave a, a couple of copies. Uh, Make Earth flat again. There, there. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it seems like. Yeah. Well, let's make Earth flat again. That will fix that global warming mm-hmm. and ice melting. Oh, well, so let's uh, get to our guests. And then we have... Uh, well, about 45 minutes left of the uh, show. And I should also mention that this is a call-in show, too, for people who have anything that they'd like to uh, bring up or question. The number to call is 1-866-625-9378. And we'll go first to uh, Nicole Grahoski, who lives in Ellsworth. Now, I guess you live, used to live in Alaska. Is that correct? Not correct. Not correct. Okay. <laughs> I grew up in Ellsworth. Um and then I went to school in Vermont and lived in Vermont for a number oh, of years, and yeah. then I've moved back to Ellsworth. Yeah. But I have traveled in Alaska. Oh, okay. And you are a canoeer, and you canoed a trail that I was not even aware of that goes from uh, Old Forge, New York, which I've been there, um, all the way across the northern part of Vermont, New Hampshire, into Quebec, and back into Maine, over to Fort Kent. Quite a trail. It is. It's about um, 740 miles from start to finish mm-hmm. and has been an official trail for uh, 10 years now. Yeah. How did you hear of it? What provoked you to do such a thing? Great question. Um, in my working life, I'm a cartographer, which means I make maps. Wow. Uh, that's... <laughs> not so much charts as there, maps. There's a whole other hour of chatting right there. <laughs> um, 
So I was asked to add the Northern Forest Canoe Trail to a map I was making for the original Maine Hudson Trails project um, exactly 11 years ago. And I was like, what is this trail? I, I grew up in Maine. I've never heard of it. Mm. You know, it was like the Appalachian Trail, the Northern Forest Canoe Trail, et cetera. So I did some research and sounded pretty compelling. And so I got in touch with two friends of mine also from Ellsworth, um, Tom and Pam Perkins, and asked them if they'd want to join. And, you know, we were all young and foolish, so <laughs> we we jumped in. I quit my job and one took canoe, the summer off. One canoe or two? Um, we started with two canoes, um, a 16-foot and a 17-foot Old Town Penobscot in Royal X. Mm-hmm. Fantastic boats. Would that be my friend Pam Perkins, the former Ellsworth City It would official? be, yeah. yes. That Pam, Same all right. Pam. Wow, story Small keeps getting money. better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you started from Old Forge and came east? Um, Yes. So far, everyone who's paddled the canoe trail um, in one section, as a through paddler, we call it, uh, has gone from west to east. And the main reason for that is that the predominant amount of downstream miles happens if you go west to east. So sometime, I think... But not all of them. Oh, no. There's about 150, I think, upstream miles. So there's plenty of time to to learn about currents. (laughs) 740 miles, it says. Mm Mm-hmm. 150 of them upstream if we're going if we're going east and there's uh, 63 uh, uh, 53 portages with uh, 53 miles of hauling gear too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and if, generally if, that would be up and down hills a lot of times. Correct. As well. You yeah. have a good understanding of watersheds. It yeah, sounds right. like. Yeah. Um, if you if if anyone out there is thinking about doing it, I definitely would recommend investing in a nice set of portage wheels. They won't uh, work on all of the trails, but on the trails that are roads, these portages that are roads, they would be very, very useful to you. Mm. Well, as a cartographer, Nicole, zoom out. I mean, uh, the the dominant uh, 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 terrain features is, are all because of glaciation there, and we are blessed with rivers and streams mm-hmm. and ponds. Um, just absolutely litter the landscape. And they do sort of head in, in uh, more or less, uh, you know, certain directions, and, and they don't all link, but a lot of them are, are close on one side of a watershed and the other. Yeah, it's amazing that some of the portages between watersheds can be, you know, as little as a half a mile. The longest portage on the canoe trail, I think, is about six, five or six miles, hmm. um, <clears throat> and that one is in, in Quebec. So uh, you're absolutely right that we're lucky to have such a, a landscape of water to explore, and the trail is just one option, um, but you could go in many, many directions. How do you, from that de- how do you deal with customs when you go <laughs> That's on the trail? <laughs> Good question. Um, customs is uh, perhaps, a, I shouldn't say it's on the radio actually, <laughs> a little more lax than you might imagine when you're traveling by water, but you are supposed to check in at um, you know going into Canada and coming back. But the kind of questions we received at the time were, uh, you know, how many moose have you seen? Mm-hmm. And why are you going upstream here? You know, that's uh, kind of weird. Mm-hmm. The trail is mostly in America. It says uh, it only crosses into Canada twice and both in Vermont mm-hmm. is what it said in the guide there, which I find pretty interesting, too, because in the old days, who cared about the border? <laughs> you know, strictly speaking, if we're going by waters. Um, but waters make borders, too, as a map maker would know. That's true. Yeah. I brought this um, pretty old funky history. I used to uh, went to college and used to live down in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. History of Antigonish, Volume One, and uh, 
Chapter 1, Early Settlement, Aboriginal Inhabitants. And they say the um, uh, country was occupied by the uh, Indians, called themselves the Mikamawagi, the we know them as the Mi'kmaqs. This was a branch of the wandering Algonquin race scattered over uh, New England and part of Canada. In the golden days of the tribe, they were powerful in war and occupied not only Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island, but New Brunswick and the south side of the St. Lawrence. The Indians of Maine and New Hampshire uh, resembled the Mi'kmaqs in the custom and, uh, and as said, they were in a chronic state of war with the tribes from Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. And the... Um, there was much intercourse between the Indians of Cape Breton and uh, the northern shore of Nova Scotia. They used to muster in thousands in encampments in the summer in order to prepare for war against their enemies. There's a term, uh, among them a tradition of fierce battles in which the Red Braves of the Mi'kmaq tribe fought the tribes from Maine and New Hampshire and the Iroquois and the Mohawks of the St. Lawrence. The war cry of the Mohawks was ever a terror to the Mi'kmaqs. Those Mohawks came from the Adirondacks, and it's 740 miles to Fort Kent. It's another four, <laughs> five, or six, uh, 500 miles down to Cape Breton. And you're making a map. They didn't have a map. <laughs> it's you know? true. Not a compass either. And the idea that they traveled such long journeys uh, as possible, obviously, as, as um, you know, they did it, it was possible, is uh, probably why it happened, but they weren't touristing. You know, they weren't visiting relatives. Um, no, we have that luxury now. <laughs> yeah, they were going. They were going for plunder and, and mm-hmm. opportunity to, uh, uh, you know, pillage and, and uh, take captives and, and take other people's stuff. But the, it blows me away the amount of of land that they would cover, the amount of land and water, and came by by water. Obviously, there's uh, plaques down in Castine, Maine, of uh, on the side of the road of Indian attack from Mohawks down to Castine, and you think now, what? Uh, which interstate did they take? <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't probably come up the coast either. Uh, they probably came inland as well. That's a, a neat thing that you bring in about um, the Native American history, and that was the original reason that the Canoe Trail was founded, was through a group of people um, with an organization called Native Trails that basically researched what are the routes that Native Americans used to get across the landscape or to trade items did they actually speak with some natives about? I think so, history? yeah. And um, there are a few books that I think were part of that project. Cool. Above the Gravel Bar is one um, that documents Native American routes mm-hmm. in Maine specifically. But the whole idea was, you know, how would stuff get from the Adirondacks to Maine? Um, either the same group of people or items that they were trading. And yeah. so that was the foundation of the Canoe Trail. So it's really built on that yeah. legacy of water travel in the Northeast. And we tease that they didn't have GPS to <laughs> tell you to turn right here, yeah. okay, or even a map or even a sketch. But they did have oral histories. And let's think about uh, Samuel Champlain's one of my favorite explorers. Mm-hmm. He shows up off of uh, Mount Desert Island here, and the Indians hover a, a rifle shot away until he gets them to come over and talk. And he doesn't want to kidnap them. He wants their local knowledge, you know. What's the best place to camp, mm-hmm. you know. How's, uh, what's the best uh, way to get from here to there, and they had that local knowledge. They didn't write it down, though, but they knew it, and, right. they, and they kept it. But try and imagine. Let's imagine I'm a Mohawk, and I've left uh, uh, upper New York State there. I've been traveling. Uh, let, let's think I'm only going to go to uh, Maine to raid and pillage, okay, uh, 740 miles away. We make, what, 20 miles on, on the water a day? 
That seems reasonable, yeah. I would guess, depending on the size of your group, perhaps. That's uh, 40 days of travel, mm-hmm. okay, allowing for a couple bad days. That's till we get there. Then we have to get back again. And you have to f- probably find provisions along the way. Oh, good guess. Lord. <laughs> that, and again, that's uh, half the year right there. And, and again, what's the incentive? Take other people's stuff, always very powerful. <laughs> Got to give them credit for the incentive. <laughs> But, uh, yes, they, they did use those uh, uh, waterways, and, and uh, again, that's the history of where it comes from. Definitely easier than bushwhacking for anyone who's tried to <laughs> yeah. do that with a boat. Mm. Are there multiple uh, possibilities here, or is there one trail? Um, at this time, there is one sort of line. Um, there's a few side trails um, in the Allagash region and also in the Moose River boat trip that are considered related to the canoe trail, but... Um, with a little bit of exploration and and looking at the good old gazetteer, you could probably pick out a bunch of adjacent routes, um, connections that are fairly obvious you've, with the Penobscot River or the St. John. You've written a book, a guide to the trail, correct? Um, I was a co-author of that book. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, um, well, let's uh, get some information on that. How how can one get that book? and? so forth. Ah, good question. You can go to northernforestcanoetrail.org and there is a great store in which you can buy waterproof maps. Um, you can buy the guidebook, the official guidebook of the canoe trail. There's also an excellent guidebook specifically for through paddlers that's for sale on that website written by a woman named Katina Bainan. Um, how, how many through paddlers have there been? Ooh, I would guesstimate... <laughs> Got to be a small Over club. Maybe around 100. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Um, and there's also people who are section paddling, which is a, a, a nice, yeah. compelling opportunity to do bits and parts. A little parts. more rational. I yeah, think. you can go, you could choose to go downstream on all of it, which might be fun. Ah. Um, and oh. then there's plenty of people ah. who paddle but you, the canoe But you trail. get to look down on those people. <laughs> nah, I don't do that. <laughs> I could. You should, yes. <laughs> Um, and there's just plenty of people who are out there using the trail on a daily basis, and some people might not even realize they're on the trail. The Allagash, for instance, is part of the canoe <clears> trail, um, and many, many people paddle that every year. And it's it's neat to think that you can go from there. You could go from there to New York. Okay. We're doing boat talk this morning, and we're talking to Nicole. Last name again? I'm Grahowski. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and uh, uh, and she paddled from uh, Upper New York State to. Um, uh, Fort Kent, Maine, the Northern Forest Canoe Trail. Give us a call this morning if you want one, to join the discussion. one 625 I'd like to ask a couple of gear questions before we get <laughs> Me to Me too, Kate. yeah. You start. Um, you, you mentioned the uh, portage wheels. Mm-hmm. Um, that must be kind of interesting because it would have to fold up or somehow get small when you're not using it to be able to carry it with you on the canoes. Is that, is that what it does? Um, I think there are models that will do that. I was somewhat foolish and thought I would build my own, but um, which was, you know, it was very cheap, but mm-hmm. I didn't really build them properly. Um, the trick would be to make sure your portage wheels go around the center of the boat, and I built them so they went around the back of the boat, so I was actually oh, holding up all the weight rather yeah. than letting it do the work. So um, mine did not need to fold up because they were small. Uh-huh. But we like to I say would do it differently. We, we like to say no need to reinvent the wheel. That's we like to say right. that a lot on boat talk. <laughs> yeah. And the other one is um, keel or no keel. Um, my recommendation would be no keel. Uh, 
on account of you do have a, a lot of lake miles for sure, but you also have some whitewater, um, and it can be very hard to pivot your boat in whitewater with mm-hmm. a keel on. So something like the Penobscot that has a pretty good line for tracking straight but is more maneuverable because it doesn't have a keel is, I think, a, an excellent choice. People also kayak it, and um, somebody recently did a stand-up paddleboard, so... Don't feel limited to canoe just because it says so huh. in the name. That's Pretty hard to carry a lot of gear on a stand-up paddle. Yeah, I don't really actually know how he did it. I, I feel that he should be a guest probably at yeah. some point as well. You ever you rig a sail at all on the open water? Um, we did not. I have done that on other trips, yeah. and it's fun. It's hard not to yeah. try it sometimes <laughs> with uh, uh, chess uh, uh, coolers uh, propping up a stick mm-hmm. with a tarp on it sort of thing. And again, if it's going your way, why not? Yeah, it wasn't often going our way, I won't yeah, lie. More gear to carry. Nicole, I like to say it's all camping, and uh, boat camping's usually not hard camping. Um, I like, uh, there were some British guys in the 70s who were the first people to manhaul to the South Pole. Mm. Took everything they needed with no dogs or ponies. And their attitude was, if you have to bring it and you have to carry it, that's too bad. You can't bring a lot of stuff. (laughs) If you can drag it, um, you can bring some more stuff. If you can put it on wheels, that's good, but the wheels don't always work. Mm -hmm. If you can float it, they say bring the kitchen sink, you know, because when you can float stuff, you can bring a lot more. For sure. Now, so that aids in your camping outfit, but then you've got to carry it. 53 miles of portage is up and downhill, too, so... Our, can't, you can't. You didn't bring a kitchen sink. No, our packing looked a little bit more like a, a backpacking trip in some ways than it did a Cut you know, the toothbrush canoe, in half the There whole was thing. no Dutch oven no. coming along, sadly. <laughs> no iron No iron box stove? Nope. No. No. <laughs> Though I, I do enjoy that when I do other sorts of tripping around the state, yeah. for sure. But again, no hardship either. No, I mean, you know, comes and goes. I think the, the hardship um, can come from the weather particularly it's something you know obviously can't control um the bugs i would not want to pretend that there are no bugs in northern maine uh and some of the portage trails are um historically very well used and therefore very muddy um such as one called the mud pond carry which goes into the algash drainage um and the canoe trail organization itself is doing quite a lot of work on improving the infrastructure along the trail However, it's all subject to landowner agreement, and in some cases, we don't have permission to sort of improve the tread or the the campsites, et cetera. So we do the best we can. In and out of uh, remote and and non-remote location. I mean, a lot of waters. You yeah. got to be running into a lot of people who are just out recreating and camping and mm-hmm. doing. Uh, Especially in the Adirondacks, um, that region that it travels through is very popular. The first 90 miles is actually part of what is called the 90-miler canoe race in the fall. So that's an area that has quite a a long history of recreational paddling. Um, And when you go into Lake Champlain, you come through Plattsburgh. So that's a pretty big city right there. Let's talk about getting lost. Last, uh, I, uh, another idea just come to me in, in the woods. Uh, you go downhill and, and uh, downstream on the water, it's it's uh, harder to get lost, isn't it? It's not a That's bad true. Yeah. The only times we thought we were lost was going upstream. Your escape route's <clears throat> always, you know, somewhere else on the water. <laughs> yeah. Just keep going down. Eventually, you'll get to the ocean. Yeah. Um, how was the weather? Did we have any, um, any drama, any, uh, you know? Um, we had a few days we had to wait out uh, before crossing Lake Champlain, which is the sixth biggest lake in the country. Um, so it's not really a joke. Uh, we had, there was a lot of thunderstorms and, and big waves, so we did have to wait 
for that. Um, that was our biggest delay. Otherwise, just sort of being wet a lot of times, um, a lot of rain in the beginning. But, you know, I'll have to say once we got to Maine, things really were looking good. <laughs> we were strong. The weather was nice. Nicole, I've said this a bunch of times on Boat Talk, too. Uh, I deliver boats. I was telling you earlier, there's been a couple of times you look around and say, well, I don't know how big these waves are, but we might die tonight. <laughs> and, and again, uh, um, awesome is uh, is the term I would use for them when they're not, when they're not scaring you to death. Um, but what scares me worse than anything are, are the waves in a lake like Lake Champlain. Mm-hmm. Big lake waves scare the crap out of me. Because they're steep and they're very short and, and uh, close together. Yes, they are. Yeah, much more dangerous to me than a than a good ocean swell. Sure, and when you're in a you know fairly small craft quite close to the Ain't water, the best boat for it either. <laughs> yeah. No, um, and in hindsight, I think uh, something like um, a a paddling skirt, if you will, or you can make covers for your entire canoe, would have been a nice choice in that particular circumstance. And I have since made one <laughs> and use it. And again, that's good. Keep the boat from filling up with water. Mm-hmm. But if it turns upside down anyway, because uh, the yeah. the water is just too hard, uh, you know. And again, that's that's a. Uh, um, it's okay to just get off the water if you feel that that might happen. Yeah, <laughs> that's our that's a rule for sure. Pretty dangerous. How long did this take you? Uh, I was seven weeks. And kept right at it. Yeah, we had a few days off here and there. And, yeah, but you know, as you paddle more and more every day, you get more efficient and. You know, getting in and out of camp takes less time, and um, certainly yep. by the end, we were putting in long, you know, 30, high 30-mile 30 days. And that seemed like the real life at that time, That didn't was great. It? Yeah. Those were great. When you finally got, like say, totally immersed in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Favorite parts? Ooh, um, I loved paddling in western Maine, particularly. Um, I had to paddle the Allagash before, so that, of course, is a always a favorite, but to see some new waters in our state... Um, there's just some spectacular places that are, you know, relatively untouched and and gorgeous. I just had an idea for the stand-up paddleboarder. Could he <laughs> could he tow a trailer? Um, Literally tow a little. A he little, might. Uh, he might have. That might have been the solution. Yeah. Huh. Uh, I, I first, that, I was thinking fanny pack. Then I was thinking we could, <laughs> you know, we could have we could tow a little. Uh, I think long distance uh, swimmers do that. They tow little floats with yeah. things on them so that I might know, have been i wonder solution. how it worked going downstream though i mean if you're in mm. some rapids you might get passed by your trailer <laughs> i i personally prefer nowadays a craft with a uh, couch behind the steering wheel and a tv sort of thing you know <laughs> yeah, as opposed to youtube uh, yeah i'm getting old <laughs> what can i tell you so <laughs> speaking of youtube there like is a uh, northern forest canoe trail youtube video available isn't there there is um so i actually was uh, encouraged by a friend locally to try to take some video every day of our trip. And that didn't really work out uh, because of getting the camera wet and things like that. But we did actually take a lot of footage and I put it together into a a film, which you can watch on YouTube. It's about a half hour long. Um, Just um, look for Northern Forest Canoe Trail? I think that would be the easiest. it's kind. I think it's called a the Northern Forest Canoe Trail as seen by two through paddlers. Mm. How's that for a long? <laughs> That'll <laughs> name, get you right there. <laughs> it's had quite a few views, and and uh, if you look it up, my name in Nicole Grahowski, then good luck spelling that. But you it's could easy. find it. <laughs> it. It's spelled phonetically. As Dave Peace used to say, uh, his name had two Z's in it, just like it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, we oh. are doing boat talk this morning. We got to remind people it's a, uh, uh, a call. We got uh, Amy in the other room in the engine room there, ready to answer the telephone at any time. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. It's one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Telephone number. Yes. So let's go to Caitlin. Caitlin, the uh, ferry operator. You uh, last year was your first year operating the Scudic ferry. Is that correct? It was. 2016 was the Scudic Ferry's first season. Uh-huh. You and your husband, John. John's an old friend of mine. Um, as Mike says, what, what inspired you to, to uh, start start this? Uh, that's a great question. It actually came out of um, kind of years of operating tour boats in the same area and watching people go around and around and thinking, you know, if I had to drive to the other side of Acadia, it would take me an hour and a half, but I could get there in 40 minutes in a boat. Slash, how can I make a living with my butt and go for a boat ride? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and involve other people to give me money. Exactly. And then combine that, I was in graduate school at the University of Maine at the time um, doing ocean engineering work, so trying to take a look at ecosystems and how we really engineer sensor systems to take a look at ecosystem scale problems. And I thought, you know, if you had a boat going the same direction and the same route every single day, you could collect a lot of data. If you put those two together, maybe neither one would cost as much. And that's really what the Scudic Ferry came out of. Oh, that's interesting scientific thinking there, dear. Mm, yeah. yeah. Explain some of your sensor systems. And what, yeah, what do we, what kind of data are we looking for here? Right. So I originally did a PhD taking a look at um, developing passive acoustic monitoring networks, which is a fancy way of saying underwater microphones to listen for whales in shipping lanes. Um, after a lot of time doing that, people were able to actually beam those signals from the microphones to a lab in Cornell University in New York. And they now monitor a lot of harbors in the entire U.S. All those microphones kind of combine together. Um, when one whale vocalizes inside a harbor, three of the microphones pick it up, and you can use the angle difference to tell exactly where the whale is relative to ships. Huh. It's the same as uh, seismology. only. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Very exactly. Um, but in a small scale system like Frenchman Bay, you could do something very similar with really basic oceanographic sensors, um, measuring conductivity or salinity of the water as it changes over time in this new global climate, um, measuring temperature the same way, taking a look at currents, what directions they're going, if the wind is the more predominant driver, if the tide is a more predominant driver, and how that influences upwelling or maybe what bait fish are feeding on. All of these are the kinds of things that a ferry could actually monitor as it's going across. Love it. I grew up next to the Presumpscot River down in the other end of the state, and every science project I ever did was about that river, and I'd walk down to the duck blind every morning and measure the oxygen and take the temperature. And, uh, yeah, fascinating. Um, who wants to ride the ferry besides, uh, let's get to people besides data there, who, who wants and needs to ride the ferry? That's a great question. So I think really there are two different groups of people who want and need the ferry. One is visitors 
trying to connect between Acadia National Park. You know, a lot of folks have talked about the crowding in the main section of the park. How do we get people to enjoy the park but enjoy the full experience? And so certainly for folks that are maybe staying on Mount Desert Island but looking for something a little less crowded in August, a ferry to Scudic can be a great kind of escape to where you really can still go on trails and not necessarily see anybody else. Um, the second piece, though, are local commuters. One of the interesting things about this ferry is that it really connects the higher seasonal job market, uh, higher paying seasonal jobs available on Mount Desert Island to folks that may or may not have reliable transportation trying to commute from Scudic. And towards that point, we start the ferry at 545 in the morning from Winter Harbor, trying to get folks to jobs that might be the lab or early morning serving shifts or front desk work or even housekeeping work. Uh, One of the joys that I had this season was we had at least 12 commuters who rode the ferry to and from work every day. Uh, four of them were young women who had just graduated from high school. The first got a job at a specific restaurant, managed to get her friends jobs at the restaurant, and by the end of the summer, they combined forces and bought their first car. So they're now commuting to year-round jobs on the island that pay them much more than what they were able to make on Scudix. It's a great way to kind of connect affordable housing to a higher-paying job market. Hmm. And we all know that um, Winter Harbor and Bar Harbor, are they can see each other. But if you want to go by land, it's sort of like being in Upper New York State trying to get to Fort Kent. It's most of 740 miles. It's 50-something miles anyway, isn't it? It is. It's about 54 miles one way by car. It's somewhere between um, 7 and 8.5 and miles, depending on which side of Bar Harbor you're going to land on, uh, to get between the two. So it's much, much faster by yeah. the ferry. And particularly when the Route 3 reconstruction starts this season, I imagine that will also add some time for folks making that commute by drive. Now, Caitlin... Um, Let's think about ferries for a minute. Most ferries, uh, uh, two ideas come up. First one's government sub- subsidies, and the second one is um, uh, it's got to tie into other modes of transportation. Absolutely. So those are both great questions. Um, as far as tying into other modes of transportation, that's one of the reasons that this ferry is seasonal only right now. Um, right now, the Scudic Ferry is timed with the free Island Explorer buses that are sponsored by L.L. Bean in the National Parks. They actually have one on Scudic that does an entire route through Winter Harbor, Prospect Harbor, Birch Harbor, in addition to the ferry. Um, and then, of course, there's a whole large system on Mount Desert Island. Um, on the Mount Desert Island site, that does include landing at 6.30 in the morning, you can pay one whole dollar to pick up all the buses heading towards Jackson Labs that commute from other places like Bangor or Ellsworth. Um, Just wave the driver down, put your dollar, put your bike on the back, and they'll take you right to work. They're a really great system that way. Yeah, and again, you you got to have a tie because you can't just leave somebody at the ferry pier and say, walk about the island. It's uh, quite large, you know, have a good time, and don't forget to be back here in time. Um, you got you just got to tie into other things. Absolutely, yeah. and that was one of the reasons we chose it um, as a nonprofit ferry. One of the nice things about it is should things like government subsidies for ferry travel come into play, or even employer-based subsidies for those of our commuters, over time the price might actually go down as the community supports the ferry. But we really liked tying into the free or near-free bus system for our commuters to kind of help make this a truly affordable option. Seasonal, you. Uh what do you do with somebody who's who's doing it employer-based? And this is the bad season, obviously. It's harder to get to Winter Harbor uh, in any way, shape, or form, let alone, uh, uh, like, say, automobile traffic kind of prohibitive nowadays on a bad day. Um, and you're not, you know, you don't go in the winter. 
Yeah, no, that's an unfortunate thing. So again, most of the people who used it to commute this summer were commuting to and from seasonal only jobs. And so the schedule of the ferry worked very well with the schedule of the employment they were offered. Um, In the long run, if this ferry should be successful, we'd love to open it up, even if it is just a once a day, just a trip from Winter Harbor and then back again. Uh, part of the issue with that is the infrastructure, though. Right now, none of the docks that we use are year-round docks either. So it will be a larger community discussion for such a service to happen, but it could happen. Two other ideas come, Caitlin. One is insurance. That's got to be huge in the ferry business. It is. Our insurance costs us about $10,000 a season. And, of course, that would increase if we operated during the winter. Yeah. They're insuring you for something you practice, 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 though. Um, could it also be like a greatest hit? You uh, you know, you wouldn't want to hate that little boat trip after uh, after all those uh, times across the same, you know, want to go sideways and take a different ride, uh, you know. Yeah, no, I think that is one of um, one of the things I think all captains and crew struggle with a little bit when you do any kind of regular route. You know, I drove um, the Acadian nature cruise. I captained that for years and years before I started this. And that's very similar. Doing the same circle around the bay, sometimes five times a day, all summer long. But the nice part about it is the wildlife always changes, and yeah. that's really where the science comes in. Yeah. If you start collecting different data, if you start paying attention on a micro level, you can watch it change every single day and from season to season, and that really keeps you interested. And again, that's uh, accumulating data that you're putting in your own computer, let alone mm-hmm. whatever else you want to uh, investigate there. Absolutely. Yeah, actually, right now, um, we are partners on a large NSF planning grant. We haven't received the grant yet, but the application is in. Something that would involve uh, research institutions like College of the Atlantic, like the Scudic Institute, like the University of Maine, and hopefully some citizen scientists to take an ecosystem-level look at trying to find a new way to develop um, small bait fish abundance counts based on habitat preference. So really, a ferry like this has the ability to keep you interested for a long time if you just think a little bit outside the box about how you could use it. We like to brag up the Gulf of Maine quite a bit on Boat Talk. It's a fascinating piece of water, and um, they say it's also warming faster than almost any piece of water on the planet. Um, It's quite a little garden. It's uh, still quite a little mystery. And again, there's got to be a lot of opportunity to look at more than a couple things there, I would think. I would think so as well. And again, this is one of the reasons I chose a ferry project because we're not just connecting research institutions or commuters or visitors. You know, by traveling backwards and forwards every day, we get a chance to communicate a lot with folks that are in the working waterfront. So this is a great opportunity for commercial fishermen to kind of sit down and talk with somebody like me who designs studies that maybe policymakers might later on base their decision on and really have a voice in the whole process. We work really closely with a lot of the working waterfront folks in Bar Harbor and are looking forward to including Winter Harbor and Goldsboro in that as well, taking a look at some of these studies. Caitlin, you mentioned um, a uh, uh, doctorate program in uh, ocean engineering do we need to call you Captain Dr. Kalen? That That's the official. It gets confusing. <laughs> wow. <that's> a... <laughs> very, very impressed. Yeah. <laughs> Cap, Captain Dr. Kalen. Yeah. Very, very impressed. Let's talk a little bit about the boat. Um, you bought it used, right? You didn't have it constructed specially for this, did you? That's absolutely right. We bought a used boat. So what were your criteria? I mean, 
one, you had to be able to carry a lot of people, but also your scientific uh, research, uh, what, what did you have to think about with that? All right. So we looked, well, we were really looking for a used boat um, outside of technicalities like price. Yeah. <laughs> we looked at a few different things. First was uh, making sure that we had a passenger inspected vessel where the inspection hadn't lapsed. Because if you've ever tried to re-inspect a vessel, um, often things that were grandfathered in before are suddenly not. And that can create a major expense. Uh, the second piece that we looked at was how to conduct research in a safe manner for the crew, but in a way that people could still see it and potentially even interact with it. So this particular boat has um, a railed in bow area where we do not put bikes, where we do not put passengers, but in the cabin, there's actually a full glass windshield between the passengers and that bow area. So we'll be doing things like hanging J-frames off the side so that we can suspend conductivity, temperature, depth sensors, or plankton net toes, and people will be able to look right over the side of the boat, and that's where the tow will happen. They'll be able to watch the researcher through that windshield and actually see the researcher bring it up, sort through everything, and then in some cases, like with our plankton toes, when the researcher's gotten all the water and samples they need, they then take a bucket, come up the stairs to the wheelhouse, down the stairs to where the passengers are, and let folks go through that themselves and see what they can find. So it really is an interactive experience if people want it to be, uh, but not necessarily a ride where you're talked at the entire time and you feel like you can't sit back and enjoy the ride either. And then the last thing we looked at was how do we make a ferry efficient and yet maybe provide a platform for testing alternative solutions for cages on propellers. Anybody who does boating in Maine, whether it's recreational or whether it's commercial, deals with lobster gear and avoiding lobster gear. And unfortunately for both lobstermen and boaters, you're never 100% successful. Um, even lobstermen, I've watched, wind up their own gear on occasion. So how do we really take a look at maybe boats that are built different? This particular boat actually has tunnel drive twin screws. So her propellers were built to go over coral reefs in Florida with very shallow draft. But in addition, that means her propellers are two-thirds of the way into the hull itself. And we thought that might provide a very different solution hmm. than most of the boats that are main built. We've never seen one up here. So we thought, you know, let's take a minute, see if a cage on this, because it would disrupt water flow less based on the design of the hull, doesn't decrease efficiency, doesn't really wear out engines the way that traditional cages do right now. And in addition, um, the University of Maine Orno's engineering program is considering helping us out with some student projects for some alternative solutions for what we could put on the bottoms of boat or in the front of propellers that might help deter the gear as opposed to um, the cages which disrupt the water flow and therefore result in increased fuel expense and increased wear and tear on engines. Literally the perfect mousetrap um, possibly has been invented but not perfect propeller cage and and I'm thinking we could get rich here but there's too many different circumstances you got to one thing might not work for everything, you know? Oh, very much so. And like I said, this was one way to test one more solution. So we'll see. We'll see what they come up with. Interesting. Caitlin, when you get uh, people involved on a hands-on basis, you never know what sticks to them, you know, what what uh, makes an impression on them, what kid um, is going to end up to be a marine scientist, perhaps because they stuck their hands in a, you know, uh, Absolutely. You know, and fascinating. Uh, and again, to, to get people interactive with stuff is extra points. Good for you. Yeah, no, that's really the joy. Yeah. You know, when you start, like I said, when you start to get bored or go around 
one too many times in a week. You look down and watch a little kid who just saw his first tiny fourth stage lobster where they're about an inch and they're colored like a rainbow. And all of a sudden you hear lobster on the back deck. And that just makes it all worthwhile. Watch that wonder. <laughs> I'm still, uh, and again, we haven't talked to anybody else but Caitlin and Nicole this morning, me and Alan doing boat talk. No, I'm surprised too. one 9378 I think we were just having uh, such fascinating guests. Oh, uh, our conversation. <laughs> Literally, we have a policy around boat talk. We will interrupt ourselves to answer the phone with anybody. A lot of people won't take calls. Phone's ringing now. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people won't take calls at certain points where, where if you're brave enough to call, we'd like to talk to you. So uh, fascinated again by the ocean engineering, Caitlin, and, and the doctor, Captain Caitlin. What was your doctorate uh, subject? Uh, my doctorate subject was actually North Atlantic right whale ship strike mitigation. So um, it didn't make any sense to me when I you was. You caused all the trouble. I did. I did. But I tried to solve it as well. You know, you look at these great big whales, they vocalize in the exact same frequencies that big ships make noise. Mm. Uh. It made no sense to me at all that then we would be finding a lot of bow pinned North Atlantic right whales all up and down the coast. So I took a look actually at the noises that ships make. And one of the things that we found um, through that project was that because we put our propellers above the keel now as a a way for the most part of keeping them out of things they shouldn't be into, and because we put the engines in the back third bottom of the boat for stability reasons, these are the components of a ship that really make that low-frequency noise. And that means that it has to bend or refract through the material of the hull before that noise can propagate ahead of a ship. So if you are listening under the water to a ship coming at you, the safest place in the entire ocean sounds like it's directly ahead of an oncoming ship at the surface. Ah. It's like, uh-huh. Yeah. So whales are really doing what they ought to be doing. They are. Unfortunately, um, the sense, the signal they're receiving is not matching yeah. what the ship is actually doing. So I spent the second part of my uh, thesis trying to figure out how to move the noise from the back of the ship to the front. And that's exactly what we did. Yeah, Which would be easier than teaching whales how to learn sequentially. Exactly. (laughs) Or sometimes easier even than slowing ships down on a large scale. Which costs money. We have uh, two phone calls. So we'll get to to the uh, end of the show. Let's go to Wayne first in Ellsworth. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning. I have a a couple of uh, gear-related questions. Uh, One related to the canoe. When you were... Going upstream, did you use a, a pole? Did you pull your way upstream in some parts? I mean, that's kind of a heavy piece of equipment, but I was at, that I've done that before, and was wondering about that. And then the other thing, going to uh, the ferry, um, what's the capacity for people for the ferry, and, and can you bring mountain bikes aboard? And uh, yeah, I'll take. Uh, okay, take, we'll we'll go to Nicole thanks, first Wayne. with the canoe question. Um, great question. Uh, Pulling upstream is a, a great, great way to make some headway. Um, I was not very skilled at that uh, 10 years ago. Um, after my experience paddling and, and grabbing bushes and getting out of the boat and walking when it was shallow, um, I've since taken up pulling. Yeah. Um, well, you can buy some excellent metal poles that are super lightweight um, that are double-ended. You can also make a pole out of black spruce. Um, so I think it's a... I would encourage anyone to try it. It's super fun. And then that way, if you learn how to pull, you can go paddling on your own without having to set a shuttle. You can pull upstream and then right. paddle downstream. Well, is, isn't Grochowski a, a <laughs> Polish name? It is. <laughs> oh, he is the punny one. You got it. He is always the punny one. Okay. Um, the fairy question. 
Yes, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. Um, Our person capacity, passenger capacity right now is about 42 people on the Scudic Ferry. And in addition, we can also accommodate up to 25 bicycles. And that's a great question about the bicycles. Um, We've gotten mountain bikes on. We've gotten uh, the two-person bikes on several times this season as well. Um, And we've even gotten the ones with the really wide tires that are becoming all the new rage. Um, But we can, we do carry bicycles and pets for free. It's only the people that we charge. Very good. Okay, we have one more phone call. Oh, we have two more phone calls. So, Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Is this me? Yes, you were on Boat Talk. Yep. Uh, well, this is Jim up in Burnham. And, Hi, uh, Jim. January is like the perfect time for a concocting summer fun. Uh, I'm wondering, and it's a change of subject here, uh, my dad built a boat. It's a wee nip, and it's an 11-foot uh, kind of plywood hard shine day sailor. Uh, smaller version of a blue jay popular in connecticut way back when um uh, thinking i want to launch in waterville on the kennebec and get it down to swan island <clears throat> uh up around richmond and sail around merry meeting bay and take with me some oars sails and a six horse old evan rude fisherman am i gonna get like like i can't find if there's uh free, clearer water uh, where the Edwards Dam used to be. Either I'm not Googling right or just haven't run into the right person. Can I get, uh, you know, something with a couple feet of draft through there? I don't know. There are charts for the river. Uh, I think there are up to the Edwards Dam. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Nicole's a cartographer. <laughs> uh, I could get back to you on that. But yeah. I don't have the whole map in my head all the time. Yeah. Um, Jim, I'm freaked out, again, by lake waves, but also there's no chart for most lakes, which doesn't make much much sense well, to me as a sailor. there's a beautiful chart for Moosehead, but what it doesn't tell you is the last 20 feet to shore, which is, like, imperative. <laughs> Where all the rocks are, yeah. <clears throat> uh, yeah. But I've had my uh, sailboat up there three times and had a blast and never hit anything. The Kennebec, I would think, would be uh, time-dependent on water levels as well. Well, you get tied up to Augusta. Right. Uh, so I'm just not sure about that little stretch by the Edwards Dam. I'm not sure how much of the current am I going to have fun in Merry Meeting Bay or am I going to be struggling? Good question. Um, I've never been up in there. There's, uh, uh, again, it's a, a place where, what, three rivers come together. There's current and chop and, and a lot of water mixing. So <laughs> Sounds exciting. Yeah, there would be some confusion and drama, no doubt about it. have to be a little bit. Yeah, there must be good good currents through there i think you'd have to be uh, uh, pretty much aware of the tides when you go there yeah. um, but thank you jim we have one more phone call to get to so we'll go to that one good morning welcome to boat talk this nope sarah okay sarah hung up so here we are back on boat talk um just a few minutes left uh nicole uh caitlin's uh idea of multitasking using the boat for more more than one thing made me think of uh, maybe you could send a survey with people who go through the uh, northern forest uh, canoe trails to uh, keep sort of a a, a journal uh, account of uh, wildlife scene or uh, unusual ecological events. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. I I think in a lot of these recreational activities that we do, it, it often feels very you know, self-interested, if you will. Um, you get a great experience mm-hmm. and and the joy of being out there, but you think, oh, what, you know, 
who else did that help if you will so i think that that's a neat idea um certainly many of the through paddlers are keeping their own journals or writing blogs and things like that but i don't at this time know that anybody's kind of compiled that and the trail is only 10 years old so it, it kind of could go in a lot of directions and if there's someone out there who can think of a creative use i'm sure that through paddlers would be excited to yeah. contribute in some way well, i think to be quasi-scientific it would have to be some sort of a standard survey that mm-hmm. would be um have the same data that people could look at one thing that um i i am also a volunteer trail maintainer for a section of trail and part of that training was looking at um aquatic invasive species so just teaching people uh, about what they are and having more eyes on the water if problem. you will will yeah. could could help how find does how does one become a volunteer um, you can just contact the canoe trail. Um, there's certainly plenty of ways to volunteer. Uh, I think right now all the segments are, you know, have trail maintainers associated with them, but certainly we could always use help. Um, I think the, the best, the best thing to do would be to contact the canoe trail and you'd be looking to talk to Walter. He's the one and he's another Polak, Walter Opazinski. So <laughs> you won't forget that. The Northern Forest Canoe Trail. I Googled it, and uh, they have a nice little website. Uh, Nicole, uh, I'm sorry, Kaylin, what's going on with the boat right now? Where is, where is it at? What's happening to it this winter? Yes, the boat's hauled out for the winter, which is always Inside, outside? What are outside. We, yeah. Outside in Southwest Harbor. Um, and we are in the middle of our winter fundraiser. Uh, we had a little bit of an issue this last season. Uh, the boat was vandalized several times throughout the season. And so we're in the process of trying to raise about $50,000. While it was in repair. service or stored? While it was in mooring. service. Oh. Both on the mooring and at the dock. Um yeah, no, it, it, it was unfortunate. It stopped uh, when the crew started sleeping on the boat. So that was good people deterrent. But uh, we do have, as the biggest point, uh, two transmissions to rebuild. So mm-hmm. we'll be Ooh. doing some work as soon as the snow breaks, hopefully, assuming that that fundraising goes well. Yeah. Small town. I was uh, uh, trying to repel seagulls earlier this year. <laughs> and one of the points I made to the fellow, we don't have to repel all the seagulls in the world. These are our own seagulls. They're, they're from the neighborhood. They're the locals. Um. Yeah, I had to quickly throw in uh, last last show we had a listener call in and ask about Greenland sharks. Remember we that one at the end of the show. Well, I put up a uh, information on that on the Boat Talk Facebook page. So anybody who was interested in finding out about that or anything else about Boat Talk, go to the Boat Talk Facebook page. Stay tuned for Rich Hilsinger coming up next with On the Wing here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor, and on the internet at WERU.org. Thanks to Amy Brown down in the engine room. This is WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and on